morning. Thank you, Caitlin. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Mark on Sunday morning. We are in Mark chapter 12 this morning, looking at verse 35. Mark chapter 12, looking at verse 35. By the grace of God, I had the opportunity to preach this message to folks that's already heard the message in the Philippines, the Philippines last night. I got to preach this about 10, 15 at night. And uh, so I'm preaching again for the second time. Preaching the second, the second time. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Let's look at verse 35 this morning. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he when his, when his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said unto them, his doctrine, beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, love salutations in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall have great, shall receive greater damnation. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to present your holy word. We thank you that it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it's preserved. Thank you, Lord, Lord, for the protection, Lord, that gives each one of us, Lord, if we live by it, if we trust in it, if we don't just hear what it says, but we put it in action in our lives. Lord, be with us as we hear your word. May these truths that we hear from your word sink down into our ears and change our very lives, because these are not the words of men, but of God. We thank you for them, in Jesus' name, amen. I learned recently that there's a demilitarized zone separating North and South Korea. It's called the Unification Village, or the Peace Village. And according to North Korean government, which I'm not sure you could trust, houses hundreds of families and represents the economic success of the country. And from a distance, it would seem so. It would seem so. It seemed like nothing is amiss if you looked at it from a distance. But you take a closer view, a closer perspective of this, and you find the walls are paper thin. There's no glass in the windows. The lights are operated by a timing switch. The entire area is vacant. Vacant, uh, that word, vacant, <laughs> I needed my second cup of Starbucks this morning, or some type of coffee, vacant except for the glass, there was nothing there, except for an occasional maintenance worker, the unification village basically does not exist, it looks like a village, but it's really not a village, it was simply there to deceive the nations of the world. What is the point of this? Well, hypocrisy is basically saying that you are something or presenting something when it's not true. And obviously, there's countless examples of this in modern history as well as antiquity. But the example that, that really is the closest to home is the reality is we all struggle with hypocrisy. If you say you don't struggle with hypocrisy, that is hypocrisy in itself. Because all of us from time to time, and I would say especially as you have kids, have said something or told them to do something where you are probably just as guilty of it. And if you're not, then you will be very soon. We all struggle with hypocrisy. 
We all struggle with being honest, with being true, with being transparent. What do we hate the most around uh, uh, about this time of year when we're getting ready to vote in a few weeks is the hypocrisy of seeing people say on TV, we did this, we did that. But if you know your history, you look back and say, no, you did not do that when you said you would do that. And that is the average politician. But it isn't just the the average politician. It's the average person. We all struggle to be true, to be authentic, to live an unfeigned or unfake life. And that is the number one issue that Jesus was dealing with when he was preaching or presenting himself to the Jews, especially the religious leaders. They struggled with hypocrisy. And they came to him, as we looked earlier in this study, with three different questions. Uh, the first question that they, if you remember, they tried to tell him, ask him about the money. Remember, they came to him and, with a coin and said, you know, who, this, this, this picture of, of Caesar, who should you give tribute to? And Jesus answered that. Then they asked him not only a political question, they asked him more of a, a personal question about, about marriage and, and who's that person's uh, husband should be in the resurrection. And then they went only to try to trick him. They tried to trap him. They tried to test him about who's the, who's, who's, what's the most important or the most powerful or the, the greatest commandment in the scriptures. And, of course, Jesus could have named many of them, but he went back and he said the greatest commandment is to love the law, the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And the second is likened to it that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So he was given three questions, and he answered every question. But now Jesus steps back from being on defense and decides to go on offense. The questioned is now going to ask a question. The questioned is now going to ask a question. What is that question? Well, we read about it. First of all, we see this question in verse 35. The Bible says, and Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? How say that Christ is the son of David? Why is Christ, or the Messiah, said to be the son of David? Jesus, quoting here from the book of Psalms, which we'll read in a little bit, which reads, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make the enemies thy footstool. He asked this question because they didn't really understand who he was. They didn't grasp the fact that this was more than just a mere mortal. This was more than just a mere man. The person standing in front of them was the Messiah. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. He's the focal point of our faith and forgiveness. He's the aim of our adoration. He is the way to get home to heaven. He is the center of our cleansing, the one who went to Calvary. You see, letter A, from their perspective, these Sadducees and Pharisees, they looked to Jesus as someone who would come to save them physically. And isn't that what we often do with Jesus? We often think, well, if I trust Jesus, you know, everything's going to be all right right now. Kind of reminds me when a certain president got appointed as a president, I heard a, I saw a commercial after that person got appointed, and this lady said, I'm going to get a new house. I don't think she got a new house because that person became the president, which I voted against twice. You know who you know that is? 
They had misconceptions about who the son of David could be because, of course, David was a military hero. Remember, David, he slew Goliath with the, with the stones. Remember? Remember the story? So they thought this one who's come, who's the Messiah, he's going to come and take over. He's going to take away the military a prowess of, this, of Rome. He's going to set us free. He's going to make our people like Moses. He's going to take us away from the, the wicked oppressors. And he's going to lead us into the promised land. But dear friends, they got the wrong time. You see, Jesus Christ is going to do that. He's coming back to take his children home in the rapture. And he's coming back in the revelation of the church after the seven years of tribulation to lead us into the promised land, the millennium. He is coming back. The promise, the problem was they got the wrong time. See, Jesus came the first time not to fix their problems physically, but to save them spiritually. They were thinking it was an outward thing, a physical thing, but really it was an inward thing. He was trying to change their hearts. See, I can get a group of people through manipulation to change their ways of, of what they do, if you work hard about it. But see, that's not really changing a person. How does a person really get changed from the outside in because you give them commandment or you cause them to revere you or to fear you? No, you change a person by helping them to see their own problem and from inside out recognize the need to change. The need to change. 17 years of age at 525 Taylor's Road, Taylor, South Carolina. Marty Moon, who is a redneck rebel, I saw my need to change. I saw myself on the path of destruction on my way to hell. And that wonderful evangelist, Brother Jim Van Geldren, preached on the white throne judgment and how Marty Moon was on his way to hell and everybody else who never trusted in Jesus Christ, their personal Savior, and by the grace of God, and I say only by the grace of God, I turned from my sin, I repented of my sin, and I went the other way. And that, that faith and that grace is not just available to me, but for everyone who would believe. Jesus, the Messiah, they had the wrong perspective. But we see not only their perspective, his person, the person. They had to rethink who Jesus actually was. Jesus would be exalted. He would be praised, but he would go through trouble. He would go through difficulty. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would have to be crucified so that we could have everlasting life. The Bible says of Jesus in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus viewed the Jews viewed not just Jesus as someone who helped them physically, but because of his birth, where he was born there in that place called Bethlehem was really much of nothing. That place that he went to eventually, which was Nazareth, and there was, was the saying about Nazareth, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? They saw his, he saw his physical birth, that he was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, not in the place of kings. He was born in Nazareth. He was, he was raised in Nazareth, but nothing could come. And because of his parentage, because of the place of his birth, he could not be the, the promised Messiah, but he was. Because the Bible says, and they should have known in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The religious leaders thought Jesus was man, but no, he was no mere man. He was the Messiah. The leaders thought Jesus was a loser, but dear friend, he is the greatest leader. The religious leaders thought Jesus was just a regular guy. No, he's not a regular guy. Jesus is God. You see, the problem was their perspective. Have you ever been wrong about your perspective? Oh, I have so many times. I read an interesting story about a daughter who was at college, and I kind of emphasize with that a little bit. A daughter at college wrote the following letter to her parents, Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I fall in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after, after the 11th grade to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going to steady for about two months. And we plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. About that time, Mama has fainted, and Dad has turned into the Incredible Hulk, the red one. But on the next page, the letter continued, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written thus far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But mom and dad, it is true that I got a C in French and I flunked my math test. <laughs> it is true that I'm going to need a whole lot more money to finish my tuition payments. <laughs> you see, the girl made her point. Even bad news can seem like good news from a certain perspective. Amen. <laughs> oh, sometimes we have a false perspective. So we see the question. But secondly, the clarification, look at verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou upon my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Of course, as I mentioned, this was from Psalms, the book of Psalms, specifically chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make my enemies thy footstool. The Pharisees expected only human rule to restore Israel's greatness, but Jesus was great, much more than a human ruler. He was the son of David. The word here in this, in, this, in this verse is interesting. The first word, which you see capitalized, capital L-O-R-D, is from the word Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God the Father. The second, capital L, lowercase L-O-R-D, is from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. David was speaking of the coming Christ as Lord David said as he heard God speak to his anointed one to tell him to sit at his right hand until his enemies became his footstool. It is in David calls the Messiah, my Lord, my Lord. And as interesting, if we believe in the Trinity, God the Father can say to the God the Son, sit here at my right hand. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 14, God promised David, it says, when thou days be fulfilled, thou shalt see Sleep with thy fathers, I will set up seed after thee, which thou proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He was also promised in Psalm chapter 89 that we see the covenant of David. It says in verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen, and have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever, and build up thy throne to all generations. Jesus was the son of David physically. 
gospel we see in the New Testament also that many people knew Jesus as the son of David. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him crying and said, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, a woman from Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, the son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, and the multitudes went before him, followed and cried, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If they'd only seen his genealogies, if they'd only taken the time to study who he actually was, if the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't so covetous, weren't so proud, weren't so hypocritical, they could have seen Jesus for who he was, and instead of crying, crucify him, they should have cried, Master, save us. Master, save us. So often in times, so often times people criticize what they really do not know. I think of the story of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell has written over 135 Christian books, apologetics about how to know Jesus Christ your Savior. But he always wasn't that way. He grew up in a, in a house that had much turmoil, much trouble, much difficulty. And it came to the place when he was in college that he decided to write a paper on how to disprove the claim that Jesus Christ is God. And in his study of trying to find the truth, trying to find the facts, he came up with enough evidence Though this agnostic started out saying Jesus can just is just a fraud, he came out realizing that Jesus is the greatest friend a person could ever have. And he understood who Jesus is. And dear friend, you might be skeptical of who Jesus is. You may, through problems and difficulties and trials in life, sometimes doubt who Christ is. I encourage you, I beg you, I plead with you to get in the word of God and study this blessed book and you will see Jesus for who he is. The Lord of Lords, King of Kings who died so we could have everlasting life. Do you know him this morning? We've seen the question, the clarification, but the conclusion. Look at verse 37. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. Whence is then is his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Scripture reveals his deity. Who is Jesus? Yes, he's God. Yahweh, the sacred name of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5 in the Old Testament. We read, then said I, woe is me for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the host, the Lord of hosts. But in the New Testament, John chapter 12 and verse 40, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted Yes, and yet I should heal them. He's the sacred name of God. He's Yahweh. He's the shepherd. We know that wonderful chapter in, in Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. But yet we read in John chapter 10 and verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. He's the, he, is, he is God. He's the shepherd. He's the judge. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 25, which reads, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing at his kingdom. He's the judge, the shepherd. He's God. He's light. In Psalm 27, verse 1, the Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. And whom shall I be afraid? And we read in John chapter 8, verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He's the first and the last. We read in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, of Lord of hosts, I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. But in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, when I saw him, this is John speaking, I fell at, at, at his feet as dead, and he said his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, for I am the first, I am the last. What we see in the Old Testament, we see reality in the New Testament. He is God. He is deity. If we just had that, there'd be enough. But we see beyond the, his claims from the scripture, we see his deeds. We see his, deities, his, his deity through the scripture, but we read about his deeds in John chapter 1, verse 3. We read, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. We see that he is our creator. We see, secondly, he forgives sins. When Jesus saw their faith in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven given thee. Aren't you glad today that your sins are washed away? Based not on what anything that you could do, not based on being good, not based on coming to church, not based on being a Baptist, not based on being baptized, not based on giving a tithe or even faith promise, but based on the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. He is our creator. We ought to be thankful that he created us. He forgives our sins, but not only that, he gives us eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 47, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me maybe hath eternal life, could have eternal life. If you do a bunch of rules and regulations, you might have eternal life. No, he that believeth on me hath eternal life. The promise of the scriptures, dear friend, is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about a mental ascent but a total trust of your being in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can have the calm assurance of your salvation this morning. He is our creator. He forgives us of sins. He gives us eternal life. Oh, but he cares for us. He cares for us. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 the Bible says when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion of them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as a sheep having no shepherd. Oh, how sad it is for people to be scattered. We live in a land that's scattered, don't we? We live in a land that's divided. And Jesus saw these people who were running around who had a strange perspective who were living their life based on rules and regulations, thinking those rules and regulations, those false beliefs would somehow get us to heaven. He saw all this, and his heart was broke with compassion towards the people. And dear friend, if it's broken for them, how much more is it broken for us? We live in a land full of confusion. As I was out with visitation with folks from the church yesterday, and you go to house to house to house to house, you see people broken with confusion. Living their life thinking that they'll just, if they could just have a little more stuff, if I could get some more things, if I, could, if I could just have a better hobby or a better habit, or if I just add some more tools to my toolbox or get some more clothes or get some more gadgets, that things will go well. 
but life does not consist in the abundance of things which we possess. It doesn't matter so much what we have, it's who we have. Because you could have it all, but what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Dear friend, we, we focus so much on what we see and not so much on who we cannot see. This crowd, they gather to him because the scripture says at the end of, this, end of this passage, and the common people heard him gladly. They heard what he said in the temple. Interesting enough, many scholars believe this was Wednesday, but a few days later on Friday, when Pilate would come to them and they said, what shall we do to this man? They didn't say, let's accept him. Let's put a crown on his head. Let's bow down and worship this man who did these miracles for three years, who had the greatest message their ears have ever heard on this earth. Yet they said, not crown him. They said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How sad it is, it all goes back to what they felt at the time. Oh, when he was teaching them, when he was right in front of them, when he was healing people, when he was fixing their problems and healing their diseases and preaching sermons to him, they felt warm and fuzzy and excited and glad and happy. They were, they were glad at his teaching. But when it came to the moment of truth to accept him or reject him, they all said crucify him. They were total hypocrites. See, sometimes Christianity for most folks is based on how you feel. I'll come to church if I feel good. I'll pass out a track. I'll go on visitation, Pastor Marty, and tell the people about Jesus if I don't have something else going on that day. It, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give some money to, I'll give some money to Faith Promise folks and missions, and, and if I gotta make, my, I gotta make those car payments. I, I, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. So when, it, when the rubber meets the road, who are we really? See, it's easy to come to church on Sunday morning and say, just I, sing just as I am. But how about Monday morning when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. How are we really? So we're more than what we just see. See, God sees behind the scenes. He sees who we really are. He sees who we really are. This crowd who said, oh, this is fine. The teaching is wonderful would say crucify him. Crucify him. True what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 verse 8. This people draweth not of me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. May I ask you this morning, where's your heart? Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Is your heart all about your money because the most important thing is the dollar? Is the most important thing is that person beside you? Is the most important thing the thing you're getting ready to jump in and drive and go see? Is the most important thing that meal at Sonny's? Is the most important thing that hobby or that habit that you have? What's the most important thing in your life? Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. It's seen. 
more than just showing up on Sunday, praise God that you came. But what you do tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next day in our very lives. Where's your heart today? Where's your heart? I close with this illustration. I heard about this preacher by the name of Pastor P.W. Philpot, who was pastor of a church in Moody, Moody Bible Church years ago. He got a phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the family said, our daughter is sick. She may not survive. But she has so many questions about life and death. Would you come talk to us? So pastor got up, got clothes, went over to the address that they gave him, and started talking to this dear young, young lady. And she was sick. She was confused. She was scared. And began to witness to her, began to tell her how she was a sinner. The Bible says all the sin that comes short of the glory of God. He began to tell her that you can't be saved by works or by grace or you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, but there's hope that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he said, today, if you'll just place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. No matter how you feel, no matter what confusion, no matter what problem, no matter what pain, if you'll just place your faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of the afterlife, the promise of heaven is in the scriptures. Trust him. She prayed and placed her faith in Jesus Christ that night. Well, he lost track of the family. He moved out to California to pastor the Church of the Open Door, California. One day as he was opening the church house up and inviting visitors to come in, shaking their hands, hugging their necks, he met this family who looked strangely familiar. And it was that young lady. And it was her parents at the door. They said, Pastor, I got saved and these changes happened in my life. I started going to church, started living for Jesus Christ. And I want to let you know I wrote a song for you. For you coming out that night and sharing the, the gospel with me. Because Jesus means so much to me now. My life was hopeless and hapless and helpless. But now Jesus means everything to me. And she wrote this little song. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he's just the same as his holy name. And that's the reason why I love him so. For Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Oh, how wonderful it is. Is Jesus the sweetest name you know? Is he first place in your life? If you had to take one possession in this world with you, they say, oh, it's my bank account. Oh, it's my Harley. Oh, it's my. Dear friend, in all the years I've been seeing funerals, I've never seen, never seen a U-Haul behind a post. Now, you can't take this with you. The only thing you can take from this world is what you have inside. And that's Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Do you know him? I wonder this morning, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Have you received him? 
You see, it's not just for a few people, it's for all people. Anybody in this room can receive him. You say, well, it's just for those who are really, really good. No, you see, until you realize you're really bad, you can never accept him. Good people on their own standing, <laughs> they often don't get to heaven because they're trusting in their goodness. It's not until I realized that there was no way possible for me to save them myself till I realized that Jesus was my only hope. You're not going to get to heaven by being good. You're not going to get to heaven by hanging around people that are good or holy or righteous. Your only hope is that you personally, you personally place your faith in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? If I was to talk to you personally, one-on-one, just you and I having a conversation, and I was to ask you, are you 100% sure if you died today, would you go to heaven? You say, preacher, maybe 50% or 60% or 70%, but not 100%. Oh, dear friend, I wouldn't want to get back on 39th Avenue being 50% sure I was going to heaven. I wouldn't want to get back on 75, actually, especially after last week on 75. I wouldn't want to get on 75 or 441. Thinking I'm only 75% sure if I die, I get to heaven because I can't promise you the next day. Nowhere in the scriptures promises you a long life by itself. Dear friend, the only life that God promises is eternal life through trusting in Jesus Christ. I can promise you that. I can promise you that. Do you know that you know Christ is your Savior? If this was your last day, if today was your last day, could you say, I'm saved? I was listening to a sermon by Billy Graham. I like the older versions. The younger, he, the younger he gets, the harder he preaches. And he was talking to General Eisenhower. He was allowed 30 minutes with General Eisenhower before he died. And after that 30 minutes was up, General Eisenhower said to him, would you stay a little bit longer? And he said, I will. And he said, Reverend Graham, Billy, would you show me one more time from the scripture how I could be saved? And Billy Graham opened up the word of God and showed him how he could be saved. How he could place his faith in Jesus Christ alone and not trust in his own works to get him to heaven. And at the end of that time of sharing the gospel, General Eisenhower said, that's enough. I'm ready. I wonder this morning, are you ready? Are you ready? If today was your last day, are you ready to meet Jesus? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. These folks who stood before him weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They were religious, but they did not have a relationship with Jesus. Oh, how often people are religious. Belief in God, but no relationship. With head bowed and eyes closed. As the pianist comes to play softly this morning, no one looking around. Dear friend, are you ready today? If you were totally honest with God, could you say, Preacher, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am saved. There's a place and time in my life that I recognize the fact that I was a sinner. And I place my faith in Jesus Christ and my life is different now. If that is true, if that is true of you, would you raise your hand as a testimony of that? I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. There's been a time where I asked him to save me. Praise God. That's the majority of the people in this room, but maybe you could not raise your hand. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe you have fears. Maybe you have second thoughts. Oh, you've come to the right place today.
You've come to the right place. You can be saved today. Maybe in your own personal life as a Christian, you want to live righteous. You want to do right, but you're struggling, maybe with hypocrisy, maybe with not living the Christian life you know you should live. You're struggling with just being honest with yourself, with others. You're just struggling today, not being what you know you should be by the grace of God. Say, preacher, I'm struggling in my own spiritual life with some things, with not living it, not being honest, not being transparent. I'm struggling. Would you pray with me? Anybody be honest about that this morning? I'm struggling. I'm having doubts. I'm having fears. Internal, external difficulties. Would you pray for me that I would continue to live the Christian life, that I would do right no matter what? Would you pray for me? I struggle. Let's stand to our feet. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, would you come? If you're struggling with your salvation or you're struggling in any way in your spiritual life, we all struggle. We all doubt sometimes that as a piano plays, would you come and ask God to help you? If you're going through some type of trial or burden, Brother Clayton's here. My wife will be here if you're a lady. If you're going through a difficult, a time of turmoil, a time of testing, a time of pain, a sorrow, trouble. Oh, dear friend, the Bible says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he shall sustain you. Would you come this morning? Cast your burdens on the Lord. Ask God to be with you and your family today.